Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for tuning in once again to the Arrangers Podcast. Hey, Aaron, how you doing? I am doing pretty good. Uh, how about yourself? Just fine. It's summer, and it's time to get into some projects and uh, do some things that I've always wanted to do. I'm actually going to be recording with my own big band at the end of the month here. Oh, that's awesome, Drew. What studio are you going to? We're going to the Echo Lab uh, here in Denton, Texas. Um, and we're going to be recording uh, as many pieces as we can of mine, uh, some arrangements and compositions that I won't be releasing on an album, but hopefully just for some maybe uh, online release video and audio release just to get more information about the band out there and some of my arrangements, trying to stay business savvy on uh, on the whole entrepreneurial front. <laughs> Good for you, man. That's uh, same boat for me, just um, trying to stay savvy with that stuff too. And uh, of course, it's important to be able to get your music out there for people to hear if you're trying to make a living at it, which both of us are um, currently doing that. So that's very right. exciting. And we'll be releasing an episode in a few weeks about that very topic, won't we? We sure will. Um, different ways of making money as an arranger and composer. Yeah. So that's going to be something to look out for. Yeah, sounds really exciting, Drew. What are we doing today, though? Today we are going to start with some Q&A. We have a question from a listener, which we always appreciate. And if you have questions, please send them our way at thearrangerspodcast at Mm gmail.com. And then we're going to follow that up with a score study of a piece by Alan Baylock called El Abrazo that we'll get into. So we got a lot of good stuff for you today. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, Alan, uh, as some of our listeners know, was on our show a few uh, a few episodes ago, and you can catch our very fun interview with him. And uh, we are finally circling around and doing a score study of one of his pieces, much like we've done with uh, all the guests that we've had on our podcast show. But uh, I'll go ahead and read this question, and uh, you can have the first stab at it. What do you say, Aaron? Fine. Sounds good. Okay. Listener Lucas Alves says, Hello, Rangers Podcast. I'm listening to you every day. Thank you. And want to suggest a question for you guys. In the ensembles that I'm working, which is composed by semi-professionals and graduate students, the overall sound of the band gets muddy and hard to hear internal lines sometimes. How do we develop a focused and balanced big band ensemble like Bill Holman's recordings? What are the steps I have to walk in with my musicians to get a clear and unified tone? Huh. Great question. What do you think, Aaron? Thanks for the question, Lucas. Uh, we're glad that we can provide some value to you, and uh, we're, we're very thankful that you're reaching out to us. So what you're asking seems like a question about rehearsing a big band and 
when we're arrangers, we have to get comfortable in front of different ensembles leading rehearsals. So I think this is a, a, a nice question that can apply to the arranging discipline in a way that we don't always think of. Mm. Drew and I have both had experience uh, leading groups, um, both in school and in our own groups and in various teaching situations and summer camps and so on and so forth. And I think for me, the first thing that jumps out to me is, first of all, that you just have to kind of get in there and, and try to lead them as best you can, knowing that it's going to take some time to figure out what works and what doesn't. Every director has their own style, and I think that's okay. For me, one of the big things that uh, big bands don't do sometimes that causes them to sound sloppy is um, articulation. And let's say you have a line that ends with a um, kind of a short eighth note, like I'll make up a line, something like that. Well, on that last note, if not everyone plays it a similar length, it's going to sound real sloppy. If one person goes, and another goes, and another one goes, then you're going to have <laughs> complete chaos, right? No doubt. And so that would be the first thing I would say for horn players would be getting them to just phrase articulations similarly. And that, you know, that can be handled in different ways. But I think just focusing on, you know, how you want them to articulate the the notes, I think is really big. Um, Another thing would just be dynamics. Uh, Use the principle of bass. Like bass notes are going to build upon other bass notes much louder than middle or higher notes. Mm -hmm. So like, let's say you have a bunch of low voices like like trombones three and four tenor sax barry sax and they're all playing these lower harmonies but they're all playing super loud that's probably gonna be a bigger deal than some of the middle notes playing a little bit loud because it just amps up the mud and so i would say you know try to try to get the the lower notes to play a little softer if that's an issue it could be the sound of the room you could be dealing with just bad acoustics but I guess the those two things would automatically help in my mind would just be to have articulations cleaned up amongst the horn players and then just making sure that that uh, you know that bass notes in the horn section aren't getting too loud and, and covering up other sounds. Yeah, the frequencies uh, lower are wider and um they can easily take over and the sound can get blatty and uh it also could just be that you know some of those players are sometimes the less experienced players go on the lower parts but you said that you have semi-pros and graduate students so i don't think that's the issue but for some of our other listeners with maybe less experienced bands it could also just be uh working on tone um, another, t- my two cents will probably be, is very similar to what Aaron said, uh, adding to the whole bass I sound, you know, sometimes the bass player can really ruin the sound of the band if he or she is turned up really too loud, or if it's EQ'd in a really bad way. John Clayton, one of my favorite musicians and arrangers, loves the sound of the acoustic bass 
and uh, just uses the amp barely to reinforce uh, his sound. And so maybe it's just a simple matter of having the bass turned down a little bit, and that will potentially get the whole band to play a little more sensitively, hopefully. And then finally, as far as hearing internal lines, a lot of the times when the whole band is playing unison together, everyone can play a lot lighter because uh, like Bill Holman, a lot of his writing is unison. And so when you have five, six, eight, uh, 15 people playing one line, like in the opening of Just Friends, uh, that Bill Holman arrangement, the whole band can ease off it. You know, they don't need to play absolutely powerfully because their line is being covered by someone else. They, they want to blend into each other's sound, not try to outdo one another. On the same note, uh, no pun intended, you want, if, if there are trombones holding a chord while the saxophones are playing a line, the trombones should stab the note and then get out of the way. That's uh, how performers should think like arrangers. Oh, I'm holding a pad. This is going to support the melody. I need to get out of the way so I can, so the melody can be heard clearly. You know, you'll have a forte piano crescendo in the brass, and then the saxophones have a counterline. Bringing them down to piano and then crescendoing at the last second will give clarity to your saxophone counterline or vice versa if the trombones have the counterline. And so, uh, yeah, I, performers need to think like arrangers and arrangers need to think like performers. We've talked about the latter, but this is a great example of how we as performers and directors should also be thinking like arrangers and composers. Yeah, and uh, one final thought from me on this would be sometimes it's easy to get overwhelmed with all the different things going on in a big band when you're standing in front of them having to direct them. But I think the main goal of directing a band is to really just get them to do the simple stuff right. So, you know, maybe describe to them what uh, what their line is trying to accomplish within the scope. You know, hey, trombones, that's a background line, so just back off of that a little bit. Hey, trumpets, make sure you can hear the sax line underneath your pads, so on and so forth. Just getting them to do those little simple mm -hmm. things and understanding their role, I think, will go a long way. Well said. Well said. Aaron, what do you say we transition into a little score study? I say yes. <laughs> awesome, because that's what uh, we told everyone we were going to do, so that's a good idea. <laughs> I think we should. I think we should follow through on what we say. You know, that's probably a, a good a good thing to do. Let's let's listen to a little bit of Alan Baylock's El Abrazo.
want to hear the entire piece, you can hear it on Alan's wonderful recording, Primetime. Uh, there's also a YouTube uh, recording of his band uh, that's featured on Alfred's uh, website where you can buy the piece if you are in a position to perform this. Aaron, what are your first impressions? I know I have some of mine uh, here. Uh, what, did, what did you think after listening to this for the first time and, and then getting waist deep into the analysis of it? Well, my first impression was that this piece does a great job of balancing simplicity and playability with sophisticated harmonies and form. And it really does a, a nice job of just presenting ideas very clearly and musically. You know, and they and there's all sorts of things that we'll get into that go into that, but just on a on a very visceral level, I think that was my first reaction was how simple and melodic it was. And it's it's refreshing because, you know, jazz can become very complex and it can become a music where more is more for a lot of uh right. you know, for a lot of jazz musicians. And it can become very cerebral, which again is not necessarily a bad thing, but but it's nice to see somebody do something as daring as just present a simple melody, you know? So that was my first impression. I think it's now is a good time to let our listeners know the composer's intention behind this piece and um, why does it follow the arc that it does with the somber beginning and ending with a more upbeat middle section. And that is that this is a piece that was written in memory of uh, someone that Alan knew in uh, who, who sadly and tragically died from a heart condition when he was a senior in high school. His name was Shane Albaugh, and uh, this, this piece is uh, written in memory of him. And uh, in the composer notes, Alan talks about how the, uh, the consistent quarter note driving forward represents uh, his heart. And so uh, it act- that's why the piece feels so introspective and somber in those beginning parts. But what, uh, what everyone knew Shane for, uh, as Alan recalls, is his vivacity for life and, in particular, his big hugs. And therefore, uh, the title of the piece, El Brazo, uh, loose, uh, translating to the, the embrace and so it's a celebration of his life and a a melancholy reminder um, that our time on earth is limited and so it was for Shane uh, at at a very unfortunate young age it uh, kind of just reminds me of how music can be a way of coping with uh, difficulties in life and it can be a way of expressing the unexpressible you know when it comes to these very raw emotions and so we're, uh, you know, we're very appreciative of, of Alan's intent here and his work, and and uh, I think it's very heartfelt. Certainly, Get, getting right into the analysis and and how I and how we think it flows, uh, his compositional intention is is well placed uh, through his uh, choices. Um, that is the melody, as Aaron said, is very relatable. It's very singable. Uh, it's simple. It's a four-note motif, and it that per, is pervasive through the entire piece. And Alan uh, very masterfully 
uh, takes this one four-note motif through several different styles um, through a ballad, through uh, kind of a straight-eighths, quasi-samba-ish feel, and a fast-tempo swing. And so um, no matter what style the melody is in, it's a great lesson for arrangers to say, it doesn't matter what style it is, that melody is going to be recognizable and it's going to carry a new message and be familiar at the same time. So um, I think that's a, one, one big takeaway, this, this melody and its transformation through style. Yeah, when I, I remember being in uh, theory class in, in college and, and studying, you know, these pieces by Mozart and Beethoven um, and just being kind of struck by how one development section might take a simple, you know, little four note melody or something and, and going through all these different harmonic variations underneath mm-hmm. and the, the basic... I guess the basic sentiment of the idea stays the same, but the harmonics underneath dictate different pitches and different rhythms and um, different uh, functions. And and so it's really a a wonderful part of the craft to be able to develop such a simple four-note melody. And basically, I would say this whole piece is basically derived off of that. Yes, yes. It's a true... uh, he, He really made... He wrung out the all the liquid out of that towel. <laughs> he wrung he wrung the towel dry, and and there's there's not much left. Uh, he really used a lot of uh, he he got the most out of that economy of material, and um, as as we were saying earlier before we started recording, Aaron, uh, it it really focuses the composition. It it makes it very clear what his intention is compositionally and. Uh, because of the diatonic nature of the melody, it becomes, it's easier for more casual listeners to follow along and follow the arc of the story um, and find a piece without words relatable. And I think that's something many composers strive for. I would agree. Um, one other uh, thing about this melody is that the the first two iterations of it are kind of like a an F major triad with a B flat added. So if you mm-hmm. kind of stack that up, you get this very malleable voicing B flat C F A, which can be interpreted as a number of different things depending on the bass note. So that's kind of a cool thing. So the very first part, it's kind of serving as like a, uh, you know, an E flat major seven sharp 11 kind of chord where that F triad in the top serves as the upper structure voicing that focuses on the nine and the sharp 11 and the 13. So that's kind of cool um, how he, he focuses that triad into an upper structure of a uh, more sophisticated chord. And then he does the same notes, mm-hmm. just in an inversion, over G minor. And now, all of a sudden, it focuses on a different set of, uh, of chord tones where it's, you know, the F is 7, the A is 9, and the C is the uh, 11 of the chord. So it's like a G minor 11. 
and that's got a really yes. beautiful sound that's uh, kind of warm and kind of haunting at the same time, which I think goes with the theme of the piece nicely. But, uh, you know, just the difference between two bass chord, bass lines, it takes the same melody and gets two very different uh, feels out of it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, as, as many of our people familiar with some musical terminology, he sequences that melody up. He, he takes the he takes a sequence and and uh, moves it up a fourth and that that creates uh, a, another movement in the bass moving up um, and as you said earlier Aaron it's it's act the, the melody forms a, a contrary motion against the bass line and that that one and uh, so it it's uh, it's it's a lot of things converging. And uh, when he sequences the melody up a fourth, it's the same as the first chord in that it's the major triad built off the second degree of the scale. So in A flat, it's got that uh, B flat major triad, which, like as before, like what you said, accents the sharp 11, the 9, and the 13, which is beautiful. And... Uh, it, it, it's the hope that comes after that haunting minor 11 chord that uh, you were talking about earlier, Aaron. Totally. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's totally true. So the melody also permeates through the B section, um, which is a swing style, and you know it's a, a little bit more of a kind of an eighth note based feel there, but it still uses that four note cell as a, a primary uh, motivic foundation. Right, as any good bridge does, it creates contrast from the material that came before it, and so. We'll get into harmony a little later about how harmonically it creates contrast. But the melody on the A section is very long and spacious. It's just the four notes being repeated uh, with the same rhythm, with a small variation. And then, and then on the bridge, we have a bit more activity. The bass turns into a walking bass line, which uh, provides forward momentum. And the melody becomes, as you said, more eighth note based, following uh, a different harmonic structure. And uh, it leads inevitably back to the A section, which is, again, spacious, but now instead of just the one melodic line, it's harmonized by all the horns in the big band. And so it creates a new energy with which now this old melody that we're all used to has a new treatment and sounds fresh again. So with that being said, let's uh, let's get into form a little bit because I think the the form is one of the interesting elements of this piece. I think it adds a little bit of a sophistication to the simplicity. Right. It's not your everyday A A B A uh, over and over and over again. 
as we mentioned at the beginning, it starts with that ballad with the quarter note representing the heartbeat of Shane. And when that is concluded, we come, we enter the, the form of the piece, which I believe you counted it up, Aaron. What, what, what is the final count? <laughs> so the form, as I observed it, is A-A-B-A-C. So it's almost an A-A-B-A, but there's the C that happens every time after the last A section. And each A section is 16 bars, and then the B section has an extra four, so it's 20 bars. And then the C section is 16. So all told, it's an 84-bar form. So that's not typical. But it is also uh, double time cut time. So, you know, if you think about it, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, those bars go by pretty fast. So it may not be as long as it looks on paper when you when you see that it's 84 bars. Right, right. And so uh, the larger, if that's, so that's the, uh, the internal form of the, the middle section. So we have the ballad, which is more free and orchestral. And then we get into this form, the A-A-B-A-C form, which we repeat uh, three times. Once for the melody, once for the tenor solo, and once for the melody out with this uh, shout chorusy ensemble section that happens. And then that leads to the ballad that takes us out again. And so um, I think for, for composers and arrangers looking to add something interesting while still maintaining a strophic form, changing the length of your A and B sections so they're not all 8 or 16 bars long, or adding another section, a C section, even a D section sometimes, or uh, all, all these sorts mm-hmm. of things can create interest to your composition. I'm trying to think of some tunes that follow an A-A-B-A-C form. Well, I don't know about specifically A-A-B-A-C, but uh, some of the composers that I think do this really well um, include uh, Chick Corea, Herbie yes, Hancock, yes. Wayne Shorter, sort of these post-bop guys that they come from the tradition of swing and bebop and hard bop and all that stuff. You can hear that within the music, but they're taking lengths to kind of um, obscure the form a little bit more, obscure the harmony, and try to kind of compose, quote-unquote, over the bar line a little bit more so that it's a little more organic feeling, a little more unpredictable, you know, Tunes like uh, Windows by Chick Corea, mm-hmm. Humpty Dumpty by Chick Corea. Pretty much a- any Wayne Shorter tune's got some kind of interesting thing in the form. Yeah, Infant Eyes is all seven-bar phrases, and it's an ABA form. I was also thinking of uh, Emily, which has a, as a standard that has a fun form. I think it's an A-A-B-A-C or some kind of... Uh, or A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-A-B-
Yeah. You know, another tune that just came into my head also is um, Cheek to Cheek. It's kind yes, of got a... Yes, yes, yes. Kind of a weird bridge with, with a couple different sections. It's not quite uh, symmetrical like some other tunes. Anyway, so yeah, that those are some ideas for you guys if you feel like, you know, I want to study some tunes that do this really well because, uh, you know, studying the greats, that's how you get better. That's right. That's what we're trying to do here with uh, Sir Alan and uh, our humble analysis. <laughs> you bet. So we've, we've talked about harmony a little bit, and this is, I know this is a favorite technique of yours when composing. I know your Sketches of Minnesota makes great use of it, but I, I think we should revisit how one structure, a diatonic structure, can exist so fluidly under different bass notes. Sure. Because that's such a, um, that's just, I think it's a more classical approach to, and horizontal, might I add, approach to harmony than our typical jazz vertical minds. Yeah, the way the way that I always think about this modal harmony, when you have a, like this F triad and it's got shifting you know chords underneath and it kind of creates different colors i think of um the whole concept is common tones between two chords you know this f triad fits over both and so you have these common tones that both chords have so it's like this glue that connects two chords um you hear this in modern jazz all the time a lot of uh you know the really modern jazz is really focused on pedal points where you know, you have, just to make up an example, let's just, uh, so let's say we have a B flat on top as our pedal point, as the nine of an A flat major seven. And then we're gonna use it as the sharp nine of a G uh, seven altered. So it's like. Mm -hmm. You know, so it kind of creates like this central point for, as a listener, for you to follow along with that kind of glues these these separated chords together into a more unified sound. Well said. Yeah, I think that's such a... Alan makes a great use of it here, and, and you do too in many of your compositions, Aaron, and, and I love that, and I think it's uh, underused and uh, uh, in a lot of compositions that are strictly jazz, and mm. uh, it helps get you out of that vertical mindset and more of a thinking linearly, which is how we usually perceive music, the line. Where does it come from? Where is it going? Well said. Thanks. <laughs> you too. The B section provides contrast to this more modal uh, approach as, uh, as we move into a up-tempo swing with more eighth note driving melody. The harmony reflects this as well. And uh, we, it's a lot of backdoor two fives. Um, for those uh, unfamiliar, a backdoor two five, normally a two five to um, F major would be uh, G minor seven, uh, C seven, 13, flat nine in this example, and then F major seven. Sorry about the sharp 11. But um, you, you, can, you never need to apologize for a sharp 11. Oh, I think I do sometimes. <laughs> and that's, that's and, a good note. And, um, but it's a common substitution to sub out 
both of the chords in the two and the five to transpose them up a minor third. So instead of G minor, you have B flat, uh, minor seven, instead of C, you have E flat. So instead of this, you have And um, it's because a lot of the notes that resolve to um, F major from E flat have the same degree of pull as as C7 does. Um, you have a type, you can get into a whole discussion of negative harmony and that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a common substitution in jazz and used a lot in hard bop and. Uh, it's what uh, Alan is doing here in a number of slick situations. And if you're a theory, you know, if you're a theory nut, you could think of it as modal mixture potentially. Absolutely. Um, you could also think of it as uh, a deceptive cadence, like uh, the dominant instead of going to a one goes to a six kind of motion, even though it's not technically functional in the same way that a classical deceptive cadence would be. But uh, right. Similar, similar concept, I guess. Definitely. You see this progression in, in tunes like Ladybird or Half Nelson, same chord progression, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cherokee has one, I believe, that uh, you know goes from the four chord to the flat seven right. back to the one. It's extremely common. You'll see this. You'll, you'll see this throughout your uh, your jazz standards and whatnot. I also love its cousin, which I call the double backdoor, but I think I'm the only one who calls it that where you take the backdoor 2-5 and go up a half step from that. So uh. that's the normal backdoor 2-5. And then you have, which is my... That's a nice sound. I love that. It's And yeah. what it really is, is you're just going from E7 to F major. And that just pulls upward because, um, mm. just like a like any good old chromatic approach note, like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so, but you can put a two in front of it. And so, um, that's like one of my favorite things to do when reharmonizing a standard is the double backdoor two five. If you, you have the tritone relationship against the uh, resolution chord, that also spices it up a little bit. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I did it in my arrangement on all the things you are. Normally we just have a five. But I do the double back door because it works perfectly under that G. I just mm, love that. That's, that's nice. Uh, it's, it's, I'm so happy when I found that. I was like, oh, that's, I, I'm never going to play it without that. <laughs> that's the chord on the youtube video where you get the stank face when you play it. <laughs> uh hope one day i'll get that hopefully um <laughs> yeah and finally the c section getting back to el brazo uh <laughs> hey this Wait, is what the what show's doing for. again <laughs> yeah right uh, the show's all about something. tangents and having fun the altered dominants provide even more contrast to the rest of the tune, whereas we have the modal, modal, modal mixture, and then more hard bop harmonies, and then we get these altered dominants, real aggressive. Um, 
Sharp 5, Sharp 9, can't go wrong with it. It's a real colorful and jazzy sound. Also used a lot in gospel music. Great for resolving to minor or major chords. And uh, it's uh, sure to be nice and gritty. Great choice for want it to be aggressive. Or uh, especially when it's voiced that way in the brass. But it could be smooth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it all depends on your placement of it, but we have quite a bit of variety with uh, all these sections and all these sounds, and uh, yet it still feels really cohesive together as a piece. Right? It, yeah, without it, without a doubt. And I think one of the other great uh, advantages uh, of this piece is its playability. Mm-hmm. The trumpet does not go particularly high. I think that high note, highest note, is a a D, maybe even a C, I forget, but it's very playable by a good high school band. There's not a ton of eighth notes in a row that require a lot of practicing. It's the, the grooves are very straight ahead and understandable. The melody is relatable. And so I, I think it's a very great homage to this man, Shane, who is certainly honored in this piece. And his memory is being carried forward through uh, this wonderful piece of music. Every time we study a piece of music, we learn a lot of cool techniques and general ideas and concepts. And I think this one really just teaches us a lot about sincerity and writing with clear intentions. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's John Clayton that said, uh, whatever you write, do it with sincerity and clarity. Is that right? That's, That's his motto. So, I mean, to me, this piece is that, you know, it's, it's got an idea a seed, if you will, that that kind of forms the foundation of the emotional and programmatic concept of the piece. And I think it achieves it uh, extremely beautifully. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Alan, thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing this piece of music with us and being willing to share it, our analysis of it, and with the, with the whole world. Yeah, we hope you listen to the whole piece. We hope you check out the score. Um, a wonderful piece for high schools and uh, professionals alike. Um, fun for the musicians to play and fun for the audience to hear. So we hope you check it out. Thanks for tuning in. Onward and upward. Yeah, we'll be back in a few weeks talking about how to make money as a jazz arranger. How, how do you make money as a jazz arranger, Aaron? I guess we're going to find out. Well, once I figure it out, I'll share it with the world in our next podcast. Excellent. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you in a few. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing and hope to see you next time.